Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would take this time as we sing these hymns to your praise. We ask that you would work within our heart that which needs to be done, that you would show us how to live better for you during this coming week. Lord, we pray that our worship time here would not be confined to the four walls of this building, but Lord, we would live it each and every day, that we would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Practicing, and I said, I didn't know Stephen could sing. And so, praise the Lord. And how many of you are enjoying Christmas time this year? How many of you are running out of time this year? And uh, this morning, I, I want to preach about the fullness of time. And I couldn't help but just make a little correlation here as we scurry about uh, trying to get this done and that done and uh, forget things and just feel the pressures of time. Uh, I think that's one of the greatest difficulties of the holiday season. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, just we, we live inside this thing called time. And then when it comes to the really important things about time, in fact, uh, be turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look mainly at one verse today, but uh, we certainly we're going to spend some time in the surrounding text to, to make sure that we understand uh, what God is saying here in this exact verse and how to apply it to our lives. Galatians chapter 4. But God is never in a hurry. God never feels the pressure of time. And yet, how many of us have asked the question, why did Jesus have to be born almost 2,000 years ago? Why couldn't it have been... A thousand years ago, or why Why was the law so long? And we have all these different things, and it's interesting. Given the opportunity, we normally want something that we can't have. Uh, they tell me that uh, most uh, young ladies spend the whole first part of their life wishing they were 21, and then the last two-thirds still wishing they were 21. And, uh, you know, guys are a little different. They still think they're 18. They think they're 18 when they're 6. They think they're 18 when they're 56. Uh, and if you can't think you're 18 when you're 96, why get there? Amen? Uh, we always want those things that we cannot have. And it's interesting today as we talk about the most weighty matters of God's planning of the time span uh, of mankind that we have people who say, well, I, I like the law. I, I wish I could go back and see those sacrifices. And if you were here for Sunday school, I don't think anybody wants to go back to that time. Amen. Uh, that was a very difficult time of rebellion against God's law and seeing God's judgment and as we look at verse 4 here, Paul is explaining to the Galatians, there uh, a church, modern-day Turkey would be where Galatia uh, was actually 
located, and uh, Paul and, and uh, Barnabas had seen that church, those churches established, and he was writing this letter to try to help them through a difficult time. And what they were having a problem with, a struggle with, was there were people in the church who were of Jewish origin, and they said, listen, we don't need to lay aside the law in order to serve God. If we're really going to serve God, we've got to do it according to the law. And that meant becoming a Jew. Now, if you were Jewish, and for at this point, it, it would have been well over 12, 1300 years since God had given the law on Mount Sinai, and that's the way it had always been, you would think that's the way it's always going to be. But God is, and Paul is going to give us here, through the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, the uh, reasons for God not changing things, but fulfilling things in the law. And we come down here to verse 4 of chapter 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. It says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, we celebrate as Western civilization, the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas time. That's why we call it Christmas. Um, the simple truth of the matter is, nobody knows when Jesus' actual birthday was. The law does not give us that information. Chances are, it would have either been mid-spring or mid-fall, according to the calendars in the book of Luke, and one of the things you have to be careful of, uh, there's a group of people who call themselves uh, C&E Christians. They show up for Christmas, they show up for Easter. Minimum requirements, good enough to please God. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think God is impressed when you show up at church? No. He, he does not need us. We need him. It's exactly the opposite. We do not enrich God by worshiping him. If you want to know what the greatest accomplishment you can accomplish with your life, the highest calling that you can attain to is when you allow your life to be used to worship God. You see, God is in the mankind improving business. That's why Jesus was sent. The greatest revelation of God to man is when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was last Sunday's message. But this morning, I want us to look at this time element that is involved because God carefully planned this whole thing. He knew exactly when in the scheme, in the plan of time, that Jesus would 
be made of a woman, made under the law, and if we read on to redeem them that were under the law. Now, God's law is an important thing. You look at your Bible, we divide it up in between Old and New Testaments here. And in my Bible, uh, not quite two-thirds, but very close to it, Old Testament. And let me get the encyclopedia out of here. There we go. New Testament is much thinner than the Old Testament. And we have a way of approaching the Bible as, well, the Old Testament, all that stuff happened a long time ago and really doesn't matter. Wrong. Nothing could be further from the point. Without the Old Testament, you cannot understand the New Testament. And by the way, just so uh, we see God's complete plan, without the New Testament, the Old Testament wouldn't make much sense either. You have to have the whole Bible. Now, we have a lot of people and a lot of religions. In fact, if you follow the religions that call themselves Christian, about 90% of what they do and say is concerned with what you do and say. Uh, They have a little list of things that you're supposed to do, and if you don't fit in our little list, if you don't match up to our standards, then you need to go out the door. I've met many people of different religions, and oftentimes I'll talk to someone and hand them a gospel track, and they'll say, oh, I'm a Catholic, I don't need that. And I'll say, well, wait a minute, Uh, do you know what the Bible says? Well, I got my church. But do you have any hope of eternity? Well, I'm as good as the next guy. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says being as good as the next guy. Who knows? Jeffrey Dahmer may live next door. Uh, You just don't know who's living next door. Don't say I'm as good as the guy next door. The Bible says comparing ourselves among ourselves, we're unwise. God says, I want you to compare yourselves to me. And guess what happens? Paul worded it this way to the Romans. There is none righteous. No, not one. But my question is, how do you know what is unrighteous and what is good? We live in a day, uh, when I was a college student a little over 25 years ago, and, and sat in the classrooms, the big thing was situational ethics. That meant whatever is good for the situation is good. So if you're in a situation and your wife says, does this make me look fat? You lie. Because that's the best thing in this situation. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But the simple truth of the matter is, it is never, never, ever acceptable to God to tell a lie. Never once. 
God does not change the difference between right and wrong to fit the situation. If you really want the greatest example of situation ethics, the word communism is the answer. You see, if it's good for the government to murder tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the Ukraine so that we can own the land, then that is good and a righteous thing to do. I can't comprehend thinking like that. What I like is what the Bible says. Thou shalt not kill. Period. You say, well, what about war? Well, what about war? What goes on in war and hating your neighbor and killing him is not the same thing. And if you want to equivocate those, you know, there are places where you can do that. You can pretend if you want. But when God established his laws... They were and still are and always have been the highest moral plane known to mankind. Now, if we have any ancient scholars here, well, I've read Hammurabi's Code and it's kind of close to the Ten Commandments. Well, you read a translation of Hammurabi's Code that somebody who had already read the Ten Commandments made. And I'll guarantee that Hammurabi's Code does not offer the level of moral righteousness that the Scriptures do. I promise you that. Because when God set the standard of righteousness, every man was automatically judged in violation of God's law. And in case you were wondering, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let me... I'm not going to tweak God's law. He said, but let me explain to you the real intent. You see, the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the Jewish people had devised this entire plan and scheme. Well, as long as you weren't actually uh, committing the physical act of adultery, you could sit there and have a filthy, licentious mind, as the word the Bible uses, and still be keeping the law, right? Wrong. That's why Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount said, He that looks upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. You see, that was the intent of the law. Not just a simple outward agreement, but a living heart-driven keeping of the law. That's why when Jesus said, the law says, thou shalt not kill. But whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, says if you hate in your heart, let me tell you, no murder has ever been committed without hate in the heart first. Now, these were the intentions of God's law. 
And I want you to look with me in verse 23 of chapter 3. Well, let's do verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. You need to study your whole Bible. That's one of the reasons why you need to come to church. is because we can't study the whole Bible in one week. It takes a long time. Uh, it takes a lifetime of study. And I'll tell you what, you can't study your Bible too much. That's why in our Sunday school time at 1030, we have, right now I have Peter teaching the lessons, but... We go through the Bible, one story at a time, from Genesis to Revelation. Actually, we started uh, in 1994 at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's been our starting point. And we go from the resurrection to the end of the New Testament. And then we start in Genesis. We've been through the Bible four complete times since 1994. Now, those of you that have been attending that long, do you know enough about the Bible yet, or could we use a little bit of review? Uh, that's why we keep doing it. Amen? And, and we'll keep doing it by God's grace till Jesus comes back. You see, the Scripture, the law, has concluded all under sin. But before... Faith in Jesus Christ came. We were inside this thing called the law. Because how do you get faith? Faith cometh by. Well, let's say it out loud. Faith cometh by. Hearing. And hearing by. The word, of God. the word of God. That's Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Did the disciples, as they were walking along with Jesus, understand that he would die on the cross to pay the price for their sins? No, they really did not. John the Baptist has said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. But even after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, did the disciples really get a hold of this until after Jesus had appeared to them and began to explain to them all of these things? That was the part of the law. When they lived under the law, they had no idea. So verse 24 explains a little more for us in chapter 3. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. How many of you like going to school? I mean, just love learning. I see one hand. Two. Okay. Ah, kind of a few there. Uh, education is a whole lot better after it's finished. Amen. But... If you don't pay attention in class, the paper doesn't mean much now, does it? The law was our schoolmaster. Now, most of us, I would hope, when we were going through school, did not spend a lot of time with the principal. I mean, hopefully, the only reason 
the principal, or if you go to Bible college, uh, the president of the school would know your name is because of good things you do, not because you're always in the dean's office. You're always getting in trouble. The schoolmaster is the one that's responsible for your education. Now, there's an awful lot out there. This is one of the reasons we have church, but I'm not the schoolmaster. I'm not the one that's ultimately responsible for your education. Because I can only tell you so much. That's why the law, God's written word, is our schoolmaster. God's law is responsible for our teaching. Now, what is the law trying to teach us? Well, you go back to verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. God does not save people who are not sinners. You must be lost in order to get saved. Anyone here ever take lifeguard training uh, to rescue people in the water? Rule number one, and this is a little crazy, it sounds this way, but you got to let them go down a couple of times before you bring them up. Because there's many a lifeguard that has been drowned by the person they're trying to save. You see, you've got to let that struggling swimmer tire out enough that you can bring them back safely. This thing with the law, it concludes all under sin. But how many people are willing to look into the law of God, into the mirror of God's word, James chapter 1, and actually see themselves for who they are? If you're here today and you're saved, you had to do that. Did it happen the first time you found out that you shouldn't think wrong thoughts? That you shouldn't just lose your temper because it feels good? That... You shouldn't hate people because they've done hurtful things to you. It takes more than one look into the mirror of God's law. There's got to be a responsibility. There's got to be a tiring out process where you learn that you cannot match God's level of holiness. You have failed the test. And there is absolutely no extra credit, no bonus work that you can do. There's no remedial work that can be done. There's nothing you can do to make it right. One of the things that the law is supposed to teach you is that there is no way of salvation apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ as a human being is all about. The law offered all those sacrifices. But let me ask you a question. On the Day of Atonement, which happened once every year, what did you do? 
you remembered all the wrong things that you had done through the previous year. And you confessed those to God. You offered sacrifices for them. Every time you went to the temple to offer a sacrifice for your sin, you had to state that sin plainly and honestly. And if there was restitution that had to be made, if you had stolen from someone or cheated someone, you had to solve that before you could offer the sacrifice. The book writer of Hebrews told us that there was a remembrance of sin in the law. Why? To teach us that only Jesus could fulfill the demands of the law. The law is responsible for our education. It teaches us our inability to save ourselves. It teaches us that there's no other way but Christ. It teaches us that you cannot, by the things that you do, take care of your sin. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. How many of you have ever tried to stop sinning? Everybody in this room, I would hope. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I hope you're in church today is because you want to live a more holy life. Amen? How many of you succeeded? My hand's not going up. No one has. You see, the difference between the unsaved world and the saved world is that I depend on the finished work of Jesus for my sins. And the unsaved are just keep trying. But they're under bondage. It's going to drag you back. It's going to keep going. And and how many times do we try to repress attitudes and behaviors? I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to lose my temper. He just did. I tell people, they say, well, Pastor, the, uh, the only sin I have is... Whoa, wait a minute. The only sin you are concerned about is. It's not the only sin you have. Because we sin every day. We sin in so many ways. That's why the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Aren't you glad that verse is in the Bible? You see, we are under bondage because when we look at God's law, we see the standard. We look at our life and we realize we fall far short. And so our first alternative is to try to climb up and get a little higher, a little closer to the standard. And we may for a few days, a few months, but we're going to fall down again. And so we get up again and we fall down again. And then comes the multiplicity of ways. You see, one religion says, if you'll just show up at our building and confess your sins to the preachers that uh, inhabit our building, they'll take your sins away. Well, the question is, how does that preacher take your sins away when he's got sin? 
Ultimately, you have a man forgiving people of their sins. Doesn't work, my friend. Only God can forgive sins. I've just described the Catholic and the Orthodox systems. But that makes a whole lot more sense than most Protestant churches, which say, well, you just kind of do the best you can, and God's a really nice God, and he'll forgive you. Does that make any sense? How could a just God just decide that what you did wasn't wrong and not violate his holiness? That's what the law is all about. One of my, it's not a favorite, but one of the things that I just, when you think about ludicrous is, well, God knows that everyone sins. And so if you'll do some things to make him happy with you, he'll forget about your sins. Now, how many of you would like a parent like that? That would let you do anything you wanted as long as you brought him a box of candy or flowers or something or took dad out to a steak dinner and he'd forget about all the rotten things you've done. Wouldn't that be a horrible life? But that's the attitude Islam has toward their sins in God. It's a terrifying thing. Because when you look at what God says, He says, here's my standard of holiness. Every human being has been judged a failure. I am trying to educate you. I've given you 613 Old Testament laws. And just in case you missed the point, we do have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to show you that there is no way of salvation. You cannot escape the bondage of the elements of the world unless you come and meet Jesus Christ in person. We talk about Christmas time. We love to talk about the baby in the manger. It's amazing to me that the early church, not the true church, by the way, but what we call the early church took 500 years to try to finally settle the issue of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus' true church never had to figure out, hold a church council, and try to find out who Jesus was and is. Because if you don't know who Jesus is, how can you be saved? But they argued this at the Council of Ephesus and the Council of, of um, Laodicea. And, uh, and uh, finally, it was the Council of Chalcedon that they finally agreed that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And it was settled forever. Well, wait a minute. Jesus died on the cross 33 A.D. And we're going all the way down to whatever it was, 450-something, for a church to finally figure out that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Every Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox church goes back to that council. Wrong? How about we go back to the Bible and forget about man's councils Here's what the Bible says in the verse, but when the fullness of the time was come, 
God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. Does that mean Mary had special virtue? She was specially chosen. But read Luke chapter 2. We may spend some time on Sunday morning on on Luke chapter 2, but one of the phrases that Mary said was, I rejoice in God my Savior. You know what? Mary knew enough about the law to know that she was a sinner and convicted under the law. She knew enough to know that the only place she could go for salvation was to God himself. Did she understand that Jesus, that son that would be born of her, would die on the cross and pay the price for all sins and and all of the things that we have written in our Bible today? The Bible doesn't tell us. It tells us she, she did ponder these things in her heart. But it does tell us one thing. She believed in God. And that's how we're set free from the bondage of the law and the elements of the world in which we live. But God sent forth his son made of a woman. Jesus was born in human flesh just as each one of us in this room. I can't explain it, but I sure do love a God who would condescend from heaven's glory and become a human being. But it also says, made under the law. If you read Matthew and Luke's accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ, they are so very careful in their wording. It talks about Mary, who was espoused to Joseph. They were in that process. They were legally married. As far as what you and I would consider marriage, uh, the marriage had not yet been consummated as was according to the law, but in order to break an engagement, it required a legal divorce, the same as if you had already married. And that this was just the Jewish law and the Jewish way of doing everything. It was made under the law. God did not just pick a single young lady and said, you're going to have a baby and that's how it's going to happen. He made sure that she was going to be married proper way. But before they consummated the marriage, before there was any question in anyone's mind, God put that child in Mary's body. They've written books and theological debates have been held on this subject. I just like what the Bible says. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. Every point of the law was fulfilled. Never once in the entire life of Jesus did he break the law in deed, in word, in thought, or in intent of his heart. We do that every day. Never once did Jesus transgress God's law. And what was the purpose? And if you want to think about the true meaning and spirit of Christmas, here's what it is. Look at verse 5 with me. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive 
the adoption of sons. The word redeem means to buy back, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that God might take us who were born in sin, who failed, who have come short of the glory of God, who were enemies of God in our sin. And he has made a way that we could be brought into his family. We were under the law. The law convicted us. The law showed us we had no hope in ourselves, in anything we could do, in anything we could access. It showed us that Jesus Christ was the only answer. And if we will come to him, look at verse 6. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We love the baby in the manger. In fact, we got a little nativity set. We'll probably try to get set up this week. Ran out of time. Uh, Get it set up for next Sunday. And uh, I can't remember who was looking through the box. It was Philip or or Joey, maybe both of them together. There's no baby for the manger. Oh, how can you have a manger without a baby in it? I mean... But, you know, we seem to center our affection on the baby in the manger when we need to turn that thing completely around. We are the little children. We are coming to the Father for His care. That is the true spirit of Christmas. Amen? Don't you try to take care of the baby. You come to the Savior and let him save you from your sins. Amen? You see, he wants me to approach him. God the Father wants me to approach him as my father. Now, when my children call me, I I like them to call me dad or daddy. Father is just a little formal. Every once in a while they'll do that. Father, dear, and I know some joke or something is going on. But that is an intimate term. Our translators did not want to put daddy in the Bible referring to God. And so they took the Hebrew word and brought it right into the English language, the word Abba. It is the term of endearment that a child uses when referring to his or her father. God is saying, I want to be intimate with you. I want you to know me. I do know you. I already know the number of hairs upon your head. I know everything about your life, everything that you have done, everything that you will do. I know the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. 
And I sent my son to redeem you from the penalty of the law so that you could be part of my family. Can you rejoice in what God has done? This has all been completed in the fullness of time. The fullness of the time. Meaning, almost 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago now, depending on whose calendar you use, Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger. He lived, he shed his blood on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And by the way, salvation is not the end of your relationship with God. It is just the beginning. Every day is intended to be lived in that same atmosphere, in that same spirit. And what I just want us to do this morning is to think about one thing. As we contemplate God's plan for mankind, We have many say, but you don't understand. I want to be under the law. I want to have things for me to do. It can't be all of him and none of me. I've got to do something. That's the essence of all false religion. The law is your schoolmaster to teach you you cannot do anything except come to Jesus. He is the giver of salvation. Once you come to him and get salvation from him, he wants you to live each and every day as an heir of the king. How oftentimes do we go through life wondering, I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. I don't know how I'm going to solve this problem. Wait a minute. I'm an heir of God through Christ Jesus. We're all the time using our connections here on earth, are we not? Well, I know somebody, they can solve that problem. I I know somebody, they can do this. And there's nothing wrong with that. But why would we use human connections first when we could get connected with the creator God of the universe? Not just because he wants to help us, but because he has a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, he wants us to walk in this world as his children. It's natural for children to boast of their fathers, is it not? But, when's the last time we really relied on God? When is the last time we went to Him, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Dearest.
We're not servants. We're sons. We have a right to talk to God. Now, don't listen to the creeps on the television and say, you just tell God what you want him. Oh, my goodness. Don't try that in my home. I won't take that from my children. And I don't think God ought to take it from his either. Amen? You see, we call this our worship time, our worship service. Because worship is obedience to God. That is the essence of all true worship. The first step of obedience is listening to the schoolmaster coming to the Savior. Have you been saved? You say, but, you know, you've talked about some of the most complex theological issues known to mankind and you've just passed over them. We need to sit down and really discuss these things and stretch them out and and understand all this. No, we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's where it starts. Then we need to live as if we are, as we are in truth, the child of the king. But that only happens after you come to the Savior. It's not getting baptized. It's not becoming a member of the church. You cannot do those things until after you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he wants you to walk with him. And let me tell you, my heavenly father wants to solve the problems I face in this life. In fact, he's the only one that can. And if I will walk with him, he has the answer. You know what? It's not for me to judge God's timetable. I'm here. Jesus lived on this earth almost 2,000 years ago. You know what? I need to obey. Long, short, beginning, end. Period. We cannot make decisions for others. We cannot remake decisions for ourselves. But we can decide what we're going to do today and how we're going to live for the one who died for us. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, we come come before you in prayer. And we are so thankful that in the fullness of the time, the time you specifically chose, you sent your son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Lord, we're thankful for the law that it teaches us, that it is responsible for our education to show us that we cannot save ourselves, that there is no hope outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would give us a few minutes as we enter the time of invitation of true honesty, that we would look into the mirror of your word, that we would see ourselves for who and what we really are. 
And Lord, that we would allow you to set us free from the bondage of the elements of this world. That we may live as the heirs of God through Christ Jesus. Lord, work in us that we may bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Have Brother Franz come and lead us in the hymn of invitation. 489 in your hymn books. If you need to come and pray, the altar is open. If you're not sure about your salvation, would you allow us to take this book called the Bible and give you answers from God's Word? As we sing, will you come?